Please be seated. As Jane mentioned at the beginning of this service, today we conclude a four-week sermon series on doxology. Doxology, as some of you may recall, is in two parts originally, two Greek words paired with each other, doxa, uh, which means glory, and logia, which means to speak. And what we're doing in this sermon series is we're looking at several doxologies in the New Testament, and we're noticing a common pattern. Uh, Most of them have God as the recipient, uh, a description of God's goodness, and then a description of glory or praise to God. That's the more, more or less threefold part of a doxology. And really the whole point of a doxology is to give glory to God. Now glory is one of those words that, um, I don't know, I find hard to get my mind around sometimes. Uh, what, is, what do we really mean by glory? What is glory? And I thought there were several ways we might be able to image glory. Uh, in a sort of uh, everyday, more secular sense, glory might be captured by this picture of the Denver Broncos. Take a look at that. <laughs> now that seems like a great way to sort of glorify a team that has done uh, very well, and there's a sense of glory and celebration. And so glory uh, sort of tries to get around this theme, this thought right there. Now, of course, when we uh, think of ultimate glory, we want to think of God, and there are other images that I think are more helpful than ones like these. And that would be this picture. Recognize that setting? That's uh, Boulder County looking westward. This is a photograph taken by a church member of ours, Dick Weekly, and he calls it the crown of God. And I don't know about you, but whenever I've seen sunbeams coming through the clouds, that to me images glory. That to me lifts me up in praise and adoration of God. Sunbeams coming through the clouds. And this is such a great picture of that. Well, today we're going to look at our fourth and final text in this series. It's from Hebrews uh, chapter 13, beginning at verse 20. Let me give you just a bit of background. Um, Hebrews is a letter that originally uh, our King James Bibles, remember King James Bibles, 1611, uh, when, when they were first published, uh, ascribed the authorship of this letter to St. Paul. But we have learned since then with discoveries of uh, better manuscripts that Paul really was not the author of this letter. Uh, we don't know who wrote this letter. And so we often refer to the author simply as the writer. The letter uh, aims to communicate to Jewish Christians that we would now call in today's parlance Messianic Christians, Messianic believers. These are Jewish Christians who are in danger of going back to Judaism. The pressures of following Jesus in the wider world are are hard, and they're experiencing the beginnings of persecution. And so they're tempted to go back, back to the particulars of their Jewish faith. And the writer says, don't do it. And we come to the near conclusion of the letter, with these words. Let's take a look at Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 20. Now, I want to say that actually, technically speaking, this is not a doxology. It's not a doxology. It's rather a benediction, a blessing of the people. The main focus of these verses is outward to the people and not upward to God. Let's see if you can see that. Now, there is as well uh, a clear aspect of doxology, which I'll point out in just a moment. It begins this way. The writer begins. Now may the God of peace, that wonderful word, we think back to the Hebrew origins, shalom, 
Now may the God of Shalom, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, this is Jewish language, we think of the animal sacrifices, but we think more importantly of the sacrifice and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. What a wonderful image that is. We go back to the Old Testament, we see that Moses is, called, is a shepherd. King David is a shepherd. Those who lead God's people are often called shepherds. But nobody more so than the Lord Himself. The Lord is my shepherd, from Psalm 23. Now all of this applied to Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of John's Gospel. That great shepherd of the sheep, may He equip you, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ. And now comes the doxology. To whom be glory, doxa, forever and ever. Amen. It's a dense two verses, a rich two verses. Let's pray and then consider what it means. Lord, we are thankful that as we gather in Your name, You are present to us. And we now pray that your written word would be our guide and that your greater glory would be our supreme concern. For we ask this in your name. Amen. A lot of you are aware that uh, just a few weeks ago, 32 of us from First Press returned from a Holy Land pilgrimage. April 28th to May 8th, we were in the Holy Land in the uh, West Bank of Palestine and also in Israel. And we uh, had a, a marvelous and stretching and challenging pilgrimage. And I want to invite you to come, if you're free, next Sunday, June 10th, 1045 in the chapel. And we'll have a chance to share slides as well as some stories. So please consider doing that. But of course, in pilgrimages like this, what do we do? We, we go to the great sites, and none greater than those that are in Jerusalem. We go, for example, to the Temple Mount. Here's a picture of it. This is the holiest site for the three monotheistic Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And this is also the most contested piece of real estate on the planet. Uh, many think that if there was a third world war to erupt, it would erupt over a war having to do with this site. The Temple Mount is holy, first of all, to the Jews. Let's see a picture of the Western Wall now. Here, Jews gather at the foundation stones of the second temple constructed by King Herod in the time of Jesus Christ. They gather and they touch these stones and they insert prayers into them and they pray. They pray because this place to them is especially holy. These stones are especially powerful and meaningful. Now this site is also, as we go up above to the Temple Mount, particularly holy to the Muslims as they gather in prayer. You can see a picture of that on one of the high holidays. There they are gathering in prayer at the Dome of the Rock Mosque. Third holiest site for Muslims after Mecca and Medina. Not far, really a stone's throw from here more or less, is the holiest site for many, many Christians, which is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Constructed in the 4th century A.D., it is the church that has been built over Golgotha, where Christ was crucified, 
and it also contains uh, the eticule, which is the next picture here. This is within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and that shrine has been built over what many believe was the site of Jesus' burial and resurrection. Now let me just say that it took us three hours to get inside that tiny shrine. The crowd was so thick, we waited three hours with people in a line that was ten people wide. Three hours to move our way around the eticule and to go down into the steps. And people were getting woozy and tired. And uh, it was overwhelming. Now, as you enter the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, your eyes immediately lock on this next picture, which is the stone slab. A stone slab that tradition says was the place where Christ's body was laid after the crucifixion. And what you will see as you look at the stone slab upon entering the church is you will see Christian pilgrims kissing the rock. Some will bring a backpack full of handkerchiefs and they will rub it and they will put the handkerchiefs back into their backpack to take home to give to people who are ill or injured. Now all of this is kind of overwhelming. It's also uh, moving in many cases, but I'm going to make a confession for me and my soul, particularly on this, my fifth pilgrimage to these sites, there was a certain restlessness, a certain discomfort, to be honest, actually a frustration. I realize that we as religious people can often have a fixation, an obsession, a preoccupation with a particular, with these stones, this place, this particular act of prayer or veneration. And I just couldn't help but hearing in my mind the echoing voice of the angel who spoke to the women at the tomb after Jesus was resurrected. In Luke's Gospel, the angel said this. He said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. That echoed again and again in my mind. You see, Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry, His death and resurrection, His ascension and glorification, and then the giving of His Holy Spirit at Pentecost is centrifugal, not centripetal. It's centrifugal. It's meant to move Christ's followers out, out into the world, away from the beginnings in Jerusalem, out to worship and serve Jesus everywhere not just or even primarily in these particulars. It's centrifugal, not centripetal. Let me see if I can outline it with this slide. The particular, a particular, a focus on the particular focuses on the past. But the universal, a universal focus, focuses on the present and the future. The particular focuses on ancient stones. The universal focuses on living stones. What Peter calls the Christians and faithful, the believers. That's where the emphasis lies. The particular focuses on the physical or the external. The universal focuses on the spiritual and the internal. The particular focuses on one land, the holy land. The universal focuses on all lands. The particular focuses on one people, 
The universal focuses on all people. The particular focuses on an earthly kingdom. The universal focuses on a heavenly kingdom. The particular focuses on an earthly Jerusalem. The universal focuses on a new Jerusalem, as the book of Revelation says, coming down from heaven, from God. And finally, the particular focuses on an earthly temple, but the universal focuses on a heavenly temple in Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Do you see these differences? Can you understand the rankling in my soul as I watched all of us do what we do in the Holy Land? Now there are, let's confess, dangers to the particular extreme and dangers to the universal extreme. Let's just be honest and admit that now. What are the dangers of the particular extreme? If we focus too much on that, well, a couple things occurred to me. Animism. That sort of primal human tendency to believe that there is a place that possesses a distinct spiritual essence and make it about the place rather than about the God behind the place. There's the danger of superstition, to touch something, to venerate something, to go to a certain place, and that drawing us closer to God or perhaps even putting us in more favor with God. And then, perhaps most insidiously, there can be in this extreme a nationalism that focuses on a particular country or people, or an ethnocentrism, which says that one particular people gathered in one particular place is more important and better than other ethnicities. Those are the dangers of the particular extreme. But let's be fair, there are dangers of the universal extreme. Let's consider those. When we think that God is everywhere, we can go into the dangers of this part of the spectrum. There is a super, spiritual, uh, uh, super spirituality and I see I've listed elitism twice, that's why it's, I'm so concerned about it, is that we can become so super spiritual that we somehow think that in our super spirituality we uh, are, are better than other people. There's an otherworldliness where everything's about the spiritual world and not enough about earth, the earthly world. Or as some people have said in that famous saying, we can become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And finally, there's, again, this idea of elitism. I can't get away from it. The idea that, that, uh, that we who are spiritual are more elite than those poor people who are particular uh, in their focus. Now, how do we avoid these extremes? How do we navigate through them? Well, I would say the short answer to that question is through the Word. The Word written, first of all, the, the Bible itself, if we rightly interpret, rightly understand and read the Bible, it will take us through these places and into a balanced place. We'll begin with the particular, as God does in Jesus Christ, but we will move toward the universal. The Bible will show us how. But then another form of the word, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. He, to me, is our best way of, of, of navigating these extremes. Jesus Christ, after all, was born in a particular place. He was a particular person. He was a Jew of Palestine in the first century. But that's not why, why we venerate him. No, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ has ascended in glory. Jesus Christ is now Lord of everything. And so if we follow him, he will lead us from the particular to the universal. Are you with me? Well, I think, and I hope this is fair, that it is our human tendency to fall back 
to fall back from the, partic- from the universal rather to the particular, to fall back to the familiar of our former religious focus, to compartmentalize the holy as the particulars do. We're tempted to swaddle ourselves in our traditions, to swaddle ourselves against the challenges of the universal focus, which can be so overwhelming sometimes. Swaddle ourselves. Do you know what a thunder shirt is? Anybody? A thunder shirt. I had no idea what a thunder shirt was uh, until our dog was watched by some members of our church uh, during the Holy Land pilgrimage. And our dog has a great fear of thunder. And uh, these people put upon our dog a thunder shirt. I had no idea there was such a thing. Here's a picture of it. A thunder shirt, I, I kid you not, is, is actually something you can put on your dog that will wrap them in security. And when the thunder booms, this uh, apparently helps them to feel a sense of calm and security. Friends, I think that that, uh, in a negative way, can be the, the religious temptation facing us as religious people. When the thunderclap of the resurrection occurs and Jesus moves us out into the world, in a universal way, we can put on our thunder shirts of familiar traditions and particularities and limit, try to limit God to what is something we can imagine or control. I just got back uh, yesterday afternoon uh, from a consultation on science and faith at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. And one of our uh, leaders at that time uh, is not only a pastor, uh, a church leader, but is also president of Fuller Seminary, Mark Laberton. And Mark, Mark shared this story about when he was growing up, he did, was not raised in a Christian home, and he shared the story of his atheist science, scientist father who said to him these words that stuck with him. He didn't want his son to become a Christian because of this. He said, religious people take great things and make them small. They take great things and make them small. That can be the tendency of the religious impulse. Now, God in Jesus Christ begins small, but moves us out, out of the provincial viewpoint, out of the particulars and an obsession with those things. He moves us out to worship and serve Him everywhere, not just in special places at certain times in particular ways. God moves us forward in Jesus Christ. God doesn't want us to fall backward into our former religious practices. And this, I believe, was the temptation facing the Hebrew Christians in the letter we began with today. In this letter, while they're feeling the pressure of this universal calling to serve God in the wider world, which included life among the Gentiles, these Jewish Christians were in danger of going back to Judaism. And so the writer of the letter has to convince them not to do that. And in the course of the letter, the writer says that Christ is greater than all that signified their past religious practices. Christ is greater than the Old Testament prophets. Christ is greater than angels. Christ is greater than Moses, greater than the earthly priesthood, greater than the animal sacrifices in Jerusalem. Christ is greater than the old covenant. Christ is greater than the old earthly temple. These were simply the shadows. Christ is the substance. 
And so the letter writer says, don't fall back. Don't fall back into the false comforts of the particular. Follow Jesus Christ out into the universal and worship and serve Him everywhere. That's why today's sermon title is Holy Worship. W-H-O-L-L-Y. The challenge facing the Hebrew Christians was not to obsess on a, a piece of land or a particular building or even an ethnicity. The challenge was to wholly worship God everywhere among all people for the glory of Jesus Christ. There's a saying, uh, perhaps you've heard it, about Jesus and his lordship. It goes like this. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Reminds me of a quote by Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper, if you don't know this name, he was a remarkable Dutch theologian and also the Prime Minister of Holland in the first few years of the 1900s. Brilliant mind, brilliant Christian thinker and leader, statesman. And this is what Kuyper said. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, Lord, over all, does not cry, Mine. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. This is the move to the universal, the move from the particular to the universal, and it calls us as Christ followers to serve Him and worship Him at all times, in all ways, in every place. So how will we do this? How can we do this? We need reminders, it seems to me. Symbols, perhaps, that will take us beyond these walls and into a lifestyle outside that worships Jesus Christ and the, uh, the different ways of living. So some Christians will wear crosses. Amen to that. A cross displayed on the outside of your clothing that declares to the world that you belong to Jesus and that you seek to serve him in the outside world. That's a helpful symbol. A little while back, people used to wear the WWJD bracelets. Remember those? What would Jesus do? Well, a reminder, as you were out at work or play or school or wherever, that you're called to worship and serve Jesus there and not just here. Or some people have taken to getting tattoos. Tattoos maybe on the wrist that have a particular Bible verse. I've seen pro cyclists who are Christian tattoo their arms so that when they're racing, they can see reminders that they're to worship and serve Jesus Christ in the race. We need reminders, reminders of this challenge to serve Jesus everywhere. Some of you know that in this church, there is a, a new initiative. It's called the Boulder Faith and Work Initiative. And it seeks to equip Christians to glorify God in the workplace. And there are members of this church who are getting this ministry going. It's wonderful. But I went to the website, and this is the aim of the Boulder Faith and Work Initiative, as they put it on their website. Our effort is ultimately in the interest of more faithfully participating in God's work of renewing and redeeming all of creation including work, 
for God's glory, doxa, and the blessing of our world. In other words, they are trying to equip people to take what we celebrate inside these walls and move it out, out beyond these walls. Well, we need reminders. We need good ministries like this one. But above all, we need to recall that we can't do it on our own. None of us are strong enough to to live faithfully and to serve Jesus Christ all the time in every place. And so we need the words of this particular benediction, the one we've been studying. Let's put it back up on the screen. It is a prayer, a prayer for you and for me that God in his goodness would do two things in particular. Number one, equip us with everything good for doing his will, not just here in church, but everywhere. And then a second thing, and may God work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. We need a prayer and a blessing like that to help us. I don't know if you know the name St. Irenaeus. Um, Many of you uh, may if you've studied any church history. But St. Irenaeus was an early church father who was known for a particular quote that I think is wonderful. Irenaeus said this, the glory of God, the doxa of God, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Fully alive. Alive in every dimension of our humanness. Alive in every aspect of our lives. Not just our religious life, but every part of life. The glory of God. The doxology to God. The ultimate doxology is when we are living a full human life to the glory of Jesus Christ. That is what we pray for. And that is what I'd like to close in prayer for for you. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for holy worship as it comes to us in this particular place. Thank you for familiar hymns. Thank you for familiar liturgies and other things that ground us in our faith. These are all good. But Lord, help us to move well beyond them into the universals of our faith, into the challenges we will face as we leave these buildings this very day, into the challenges of Monday morning in the workplace, the challenges of summer school and summer jobs, the challenges of recreation, the challenges and temptations of living in a senior residence facility. Whatever our challenges, O Lord, help us to live faithfully and may our lives glorify you. In your name we pray, amen. If you've been with us the last several weeks, we've uh, given you this card. Hopefully you got one today as you came in. We've urged you to write your own doxology, and that's a good thing, certainly, and continue to do that. But I'm actually going to take you in a different direction this morning. I want this card to be your reminder this week of the challenge to worship God in a, in a particular haha, place, but in a universal way. I want you to use this card and write on it one place you want to glorify God this week outside these walls. Could be work could be driving your car, could be your speech. Whatever it is, let's take the next few moments to write where it is we want to glorify God in a surprising and universal way. Let's do that.